Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. In this episode, I had the opportunity to catch up with Chris Ressa. You may know him as the Chief Operating Officer at DLC Management, one of the nation's largest privately held retail real estate owners. Or you might also know him for his huge following on LinkedIn. But before he made his incredible mark on retail real estate at the young age of 36, he had to overcome some serious adversity. And I can promise you it is a story you will not want to miss. So let's get right into it. Hey, everybody. Aaron Zucker here, the host of Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. Wanted to take a quick second and thank the guys over at Cas Source, who are a phenomenal agency that helped me put together this idea of creating this podcast into a reality. They're willing and able to not only put together a podcast, but any other great marketing content that you may need. And I'd highly recommend reaching out to them. Chris, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate you uh, carving out the time here at the Open Air Conference. So let's get right into it. Tell us a little bit about your story. I mean, obviously today you've climbed up to Chief Operating Officer and President at DLC, which is no easy feat at any point in anybody's career. You're how old? I am going to be 37 this year. Yeah, that's that's insane to have a role that large, that quickly in your career. It's inspiring. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are going to be intrigued to hear how you got there. So let's start. Where are you from? How did you grow up? Town called Byram, New Jersey. So I was born in the Bronx. It was me and my dad. My mom left when I was two. Haven't seen her since. And so my dad moved me out to Western New Jersey, which is lower middle class and rural where I grew up and not too far from the Pocono Mountains to give you reference and kind of where New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York meet that tip. I was from the area up there, Sussex County, New Jersey, as it's known. So it was me and my dad. It was a, When we first moved there, it was a one bedroom apartment. I slept in the bedroom. My dad slept on the couch. My dad was a garbage man when he first moved there. He moved there because his brother was there and my dad was just like, we were trying to start our life. And so my dad was going to try to keep me off the streets, even though we didn't have streets where I grew up, <laughs> but he was from the Bronx. And so he got me into sports at an early age. And he had like four rules, which were, I scored the most touchdowns in football. I won every wrestling match. I didn't strike out in baseball and I got straight A's in school. And so he was adamant about school. He was like a drill sergeant, even though he didn't even graduate high school. He was a drill sergeant. And so... Why was he like that? Do you think he wanted a better life for you? Is that why? Yeah. He he was trying to keep me straight and narrow. He felt like this uber obligation since my mom had left. And so he turned into a crazy drill sergeant. His whole life was me. And so he was, when I was older... He was the guy no parents wanted to sit by at a wrestling match or a football game. He harassed referees. He was, there's no referee wanted my dad there. He must've got kicked out of sporting events with thousands of people numerous times. He was an intense guy. Very intense dude. Very intense dude. And when it came to school, sports, everything, intense guy. And so I kind of thrived under the pressure. I was like, oh, you, you want me to get straight A's? I'm going to get straight A pluses and kind of took that approach. And it was this tug and pull between me and him. I didn't go the way of like where people were like that broke people and got rebellious in like in the drugs or whatever that might do. Could have gone that way. Yeah. So it didn't go that way. Big risk there. So it didn't go that way for me. Thank God. And so then I wrestled my whole life and we had no money. My dad ended up getting remarried. That woman 
my mom when I was like 11 years old. And I have two brothers from that, but I ended up wrestling across the country. I was a high school American, got scholarship offers. Wanted to be at a big school. Can't fault you for that. I did the same thing. Yeah. So I wanted to be at a big school. I went to Rutgers, not knowing what I wanted to do. All I knew was when it was Saturday morning and my kid wanted to go to the movie theater and they asked me for 20 bucks. I didn't want to not have the money. And I grew up in Sarah where I might not be able to go to the movies on Saturday. So I wanted like a corporate job. And so when you're really trying to make a lot of money, there's two really like key ways. You either go the real entrepreneurial route what you're doing now, which could lead to wealth, or you end up going like the corporate route and really working your way up and both have its benefits and flaws. And since I'm now an investor, I'm not an entrepreneur at the moment. I really am in the corporate world and went the corporate route. And in college, I interviewed my senior year at like 35 places, no idea what I wanted to do. And one of the places that I interviewed for was Sherwin-Williams. They recruited on campus and they were looking for a real estate representative to do new stores, relocations, offices, whatever, corporate real estate. And I thought it was cool. I was getting a company credit card. My first job out of college, they were relocating me. I got to stay in a hotel until I found an apartment. It was like this big thing in Philly. Oh, wow. And so I said, I accepted. I got one of my friends. So I grew up in a small town, so very tight-knit crew. One of my friends who didn't go to college was waiting on tables. I got him to move with me from home where I grew up. He moved with me down to the Philly area. We got an apartment and he got in the mortgage business at the time when it was hot. What year is this? This is in 0304. Okay. So you finished, so you go to, you wrestled, wrestled at, Rutgers. at Rutgers. And you, obviously that had to have played somewhat your work ethic and the competitive nature through college athletics and yeah, bouncing so, back to school. That has to play a role. In what- so definitely from a, every day is hard, but I've, and I lose track now, but it was like 14 pounds in 15 hours. So that's a lot harder than any lease I've ever done. Yeah, I would imagine. So it's a lot harder than any construction contract we had to negotiate or anything like that. So it's perspective in the business world now, but definitely helpful. And so at Sherwin-Williams, it was really interesting. It was like in that year and a half I was there, I learned a lot about myself and where I wanted my career to go. And so I think one of the key things and for the audience that I realized and learned in the corporate world, there's really three ways that you can rise up the corporate ladder. You're either the smartest person in the room, you know a lot of people that can move you up, or you're the hardest worker in the room. And so where I come from, I knew no one. I saw really fast after sitting in a lot of meetings that I clearly wasn't the smartest one. But on the work ethic part, I feel like, you know, coming from a true blue collar area, a blue collar sport like wrestling, I had some grit and I knew that effort could help me. And I felt like along the way, I could beat a lot of people through effort, even if they were more talented and smarter. And so I went all in on effort and I started to self-educate myself at Sherwin-Williams. And so I had a binder, Wall Street Journal, any article that was about commercial real estate or retail real estate or retail, I like cut out and read on the weekends and it was, you know, by the time in a year and a half, I had binders and binders and I was actively trying to understand. I heard the word CMBS. I would go Google CMBS. What does that mean? And became really a place where I could start to talk to people. And they're like, wow, this guy actually knows what he's talking about. And because I put in a lot of effort. And so I had a great opportunity at Sherwin-Williams. I met with one of the attorneys there and I had like a perfect score in my annual review and I got a 3% raise. I was like, man, 
how do you make money in the corporate world? That's pretty disheartening. <laughs> and so, I mean, 3% inflation at this point. And so, but not atypical. And so that was like, oh, five, oh, six. You're one year in? Something like that. In? One, okay. and, Yeah. And so I said, so I'm talking to this attorney that I became friendly with. And I said, so how do you make any money? And he said, well, you have to do what I call working with like-minded people. And he said, listen, I'm an attorney. I don't make a lot of money. If I wanted to make a ton of money, I would go move to New York City or DC and work for the big law firms 18 hours a day and make seven figures. He goes, but I love the law. I want to do the law. And it's a Fortune 200 company or 300 company, whatever it was at the time, 500. And he was like, three o'clock, I want to go to the soccer game, watch my kids. No one says anything. It's accepted. You know, it's a good work-life balance and I get to do the law, but I get to have a great family life. He was like a millennial before millennials even existed. I guess so. And so... I said, well, that's interesting. He goes, but if you want to make a lot of money, you have to do what I call work with like-minded people. And he was like, here, you're a function of their business. You're not their business. Correct. Sir Williams in the paint business, yeah. not the real estate business. And the people you make the most money here sell the most paint. And so if you want to work in marketing, go work for the best marketing company out there. Don't work at the marketing company at Hugo Boss. If you want to work in finance, don't work at the finance company for Verizon. Go work for the best financial firm. It's like, if you want to work in real estate, you need to go work for a real estate company. And so a couple of weeks later, I went to a developer in New York City, Ashkenazi Acquisitions. I moved and that's when I got on the landlord side. Got it. And whether you want to admit it or not, you probably got your intensity from your totally. dad. So, and I know you well enough to say this, you took your first job, just like you take every day of every job that you've probably ever had extremely seriously. Totally. That said, I know you well enough to know too that you like a good laugh. Give us a good laugh. I know you have one embarrassing story from your Sherwin day where you said or did something in a real estate committee meeting or give us an embarrassing story to show that you're a little bit uh, human here. So I had the country of Canada as one of my territories. I basically had a lot of territories that my boss didn't want to go to. So I'd like West Virginia. I had parts of Connecticut he didn't want to go travel to. I had the West Coast of Canada. And so... They were like, listen, you got to go meet with the district manager, tour the market. Here's the market plan we developed. We want you to go look at sites, tour with the district manager, and we need to open four locations in this next year in Vancouver. And so I said, okay. And I booked the trip. I go to the airport. They asked me for my passport. This is at post 9-11. I go, I don't have a passport. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I've never left the country in my life. There was no need. I like, was rarely out of play. New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Rarely <laughs> New Jersey. And they were like, you don't have a passport? And they're like, we can't let you on this plane. So I had to call my boss and say, listen, I know this is really stupid, but I don't have a passport and they're not letting <laughs> me on this plane right now. And so I would, they rushed one and I got, I got on the plane the next week and I ended up going, but now I have a passport, obviously, and sure. I've been out of the country, but I had no idea. <laughs> That's a good one. Oh man, I like that. So it sounds like, I don't know if the, the attorney that kind of talked to you into the idea of getting into the core of whatever you decided to do, yeah. meaning if you want to be in real estate, work at a real estate company. Was he a mentor? If maybe, maybe not. It was not. just an offhand conversation with that guy. Got the guy it. I worked for was definitely a mentor, Bill Seal. He's retired now, but he was an amazing guy. Yeah. Yeah. What other mentors have you had along the way? So, my assistant wrestling coach in college was amazing for me because I lived under an iron fist growing up. And so, he was the positive. I remember the first film session we had. 
And those were like the things I dreaded because my dad, who knew nothing about wrestling, was telling me everything I was doing wrong every match, even though he knew nothing. Right. I coach high school basketball in my spare time. I'm definitely familiar with that parent type. <laughs> right. So that was my, I'm like, hey, dad, you've never wrestled a day in your life. You don't know what you're talking about. And so I went and watched film. And I remember like after the first 20 seconds, he's like, see right there? That's great. And I'm like, wow, I never had anyone say that was great in my life. Right. And then he was like, but here, here's how I would change it. And I was like, that was like, and built a good relationship with that guy because that was like profound to me, right? And watching film. So he was one. He taught me one of the best things I've learned, which is especially that I've applied to business is the only thing worse than bad habits that don't work are bad habits that do work. And so growing up wrestling, I, I was strong and fast. My technique was, I was pretty peanut butter and jelly. I was boring to watch because my technique was meh, but I was strong and fast. And when I got to college, everyone was strong and fast. So your right. technique better be good. And I had a lot of habits that worked for so many years, but when I got to college, didn't had to change. And so that applies to the business world. And I think with the way disruption is and innovation and retail, it might be working now, but if you're not looking 10 years and changing, even though it's working, you could have a problem. So he was a great mentor. My boss at Sherwin's, all my bosses have been great mentors. My boss at Ashkenazi Acquisitions, the guy, Barry Lustig was a great mentor because he had least space for Talman for years. And he gave me a lot of good perspective on how the old mall world yeah, worked. Yeah, how to negotiate a complex deal. It wasn't yeah. just prospecting and sourcing whoever you can get with the poll. And then our CEO, Adam Ifshin, today is a great mentor to me. So I've had a lot of good ones. My father was, he knew nothing about the individual sports I played, but he definitely taught me about competition. And he, just by watching sports, he had some really good perspectives on life and good perspectives on sport. And so my favorite one, this is so wrestling specific, but even if you're not in wrestling, you can gain the context in wrestling the whole, when you're on top and the other guys on bottom, if he escapes, it's one point. And if he reverses you and he gets behind you, it's two. You'll hear coaches in youth always say, one, not two. So give the guy one, but don't get reversed. You have to give up the escape. And I think my dad got this from a guy named Don D. Flippis, but he used to say it to me is like, one, not two. How about freaking none? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and freaking was his exact words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so anyway, he gave me a lot of good perspectives on competition. Awesome. Okay. So clearly mentors played a huge role. Didn't mean to digress there. So let's get back into your story. So you started Ashkenazi. Yeah. You're in leasing. I'm in leasing. Okay. Unbelievable training ground, ton of real estate they owned. And I didn't want to get into third party. I wanted to understand because at that time I was like, well, maybe I'm going to start to own real estate one day. I want to work for an owner. I don't want to third party. Did you have that realization when you started at Ashkenazi or did you know that you wanted to own real estate one day when you started at Sherwin? I mean, so I know I wanted to build wealth. Right. I didn't know if that was, I was going to buy some penny stock that ended up being buying Amazon in 1988 or 98, or it was going to be real estate, but I thought it was a potential investment opportunity for me. I didn't know at that time. I had just like read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and some books. Nonetheless, I was on the path of like the corporate world. And so today I own some personal real estate investments. I own single family housing, and then I'm invested in the DLC deals that we have there. And so I have that path that I've built building wealth. But at that time, I, I didn't know like you know now. And so it was great because I got to work on product type that was immense. I had 
enclosed malls, urban markets, high street retail, open air centers, because they own this eclectic mix of real estate. There wasn't a lot of leasing people. It was kind of like people working on anything. office. Yeah, exactly. So I got to cut my teeth on a lot of deals that if I had worked for a big corporation at that time, I wouldn't, it would have taken me 10 years to work on those deals. I, you know, one of my first deals was a Burlington deal in Eastland Mall in Harper Woods, Michigan, at like 23 years old. I had graduated at 21. And so you so, were at Sherwin for two years. You jump into the gun with and Ashkenazi. I did a nail and salon deal, a food court deal, and then Burlington. Okay. Ready to roll. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I couldn't imagine my third deal being a box deal. That's crazy. So, and, and not just any box deal. I mean, this is a real retailer. Yeah. And it was a crazy scenario deal because I got caught up in something where Burlington had a store with Ashkenazi that they wanted Ben to fix that was a contentious scenario on whose fault it was. And they brought that up at the end of my lease and like, it was crazy, but... You probably had a lot on the line. I mean, I, I suspect there's a pretty large commission at stake for you. I mean... It, totally. I mean, you're 23 years old. Yeah, I don't exactly. care. Unless if you were inheriting billions of dollars, like a material amount of money to anybody, but let alone a 23-year-old who's you looking to it. catch their big break. Wow. All right. So you're making leasing deals with everybody yeah. from the high street sexy retailers down to the 1,200 so, square foot nail salons. So I was able to work on a ton of stuff. Yeah. And then I got a call from DLC and realized that I liked traditional suburban real estate and I wanted to get into a more traditional format and like choose a path versus being a generalist of anything. And so I went to DLC as a leasing rep and started working my way up. How long were you in Ashkenazi? Another year and a half. Got it. And DLC goes after you because they like you for whatever reason. Easy to find out why. I see passion. Wanting to learn. It makes sense. So you start working at DLC. You're a leasing rep. Leasing rep. Yeah. And so... My first properties were in Connecticut doing deals. I started to do deals and they started to slowly give me more. It was like, I called myself, don't call me as a roaming road warrior. I was doing stuff in Jacksonville, Ohio, all over the country because we own stuff with a wide geography. And I then realized there's like on the corporate side, two ways in leasing you can grow. You could really either get into cooler projects, bigger projects, sexier projects, bigger dollar values, bigger deals, new developments, or you could get into the management side of people. And at that time, I kind of realized like as much as I liked real estate, I liked the coaching, managing, mentoring side more and wanted to see if I could break into that part of it. And they don't always translate being like a leader coach and being a deal maker. But I had a, a lot of people that made an impact on me. And I wanted to try to see if I had the ability to do that and lead an organization or a team at a minimum. And so there wasn't really an opportunity at DLC. And then there finally was. And I took it, which was at our Midwest office in Chicago. And we had two leasing reps there and I was running the Midwest. We had an admin, we were growing that team. And then that led to, they split the country, which was at the time, call it the Northeast and Midwest, our Southeast and Mid-Atlantic was me and another guy and we split the country. And now I had a bigger portfolio, a much larger team. There was like seven or eight people. And so that was a different experience going from managing like one or two and really day to day until managing a bigger team. When you went from managing 
one or two people, that was more of a player coach role, correct? Oh. You were doing some leasing assignments. Yeah. You, your name was on the flyers, et cetera. Were you still doing that when your team grew or you had to dial back and basically so become So I think in our business today, and you talk to Brian or whatever, there's always some form of relationship, deal-making, maybe it's corporate deal-making, less day-to-day. I end up on a lot of today, even still like on our bigger leases where there's like some issues at the end that no one can get through and they need decisions made, but definitely a lot less day-to-day deals for sure. Going on portfolio reviews, building relationships, but on the deals, a lot less. It was more about growing the people and creating a strategy, a leasing strategy. How are we going to lease differently than our competitors? What were we going to do that was different? And a process system strategy and building a system around how we would go and do more deals. So give me some context of time. You started there as a leasing rep. You're there for how long before you get, let's call it a director role where you have one to two agents? Five years. Okay. So you're a leasing rep from... So in about 2011, so about 06 to... 11. Yeah. You're a leasing guy. And then 11, you become a director, let's call it. And then in 13, we split the country. Yep. And so now I'm managing a much larger. And then in about 16, I oversaw all of leasing, which was one of the most unique things because we entered something that was very different for me, which was I was managing people who managed people. So that was very unique. So one step removed, one very more, the biggest challenge transition for me was being, I'm an amazing tactician in my own head, meaning give me a task to do. I can go do it. I don't care what it is. I'll solve it. But that type of leadership, when you're running a department or a company, is much more strategy and less tactics, right? You're not the execution guy. You're more developing the plan and the strategy that other people execute on, building them up so they can execute. Two different thought processes, two different perspectives, and growing and learning that was a big challenge. And I still work on that day to day because I feel like I could go get that done. But in my role, you need to be able to pull down one lever, knock down 30 pins. If you can't do that, you will be struggling leading an organization. Right. So 2011, you get the director role. Then the country splits in half at what time? About 13. 13. And then 16, you take over the whole portfolio. Yeah. And you're basically an SVP of leasing. That's what I was. Yeah. Okay. And so clearly things are going well. It sounds like you were growing with DLC totally too. That was part of, you know, that might have been what's called, I don't believe very much of your story has much to do with luck, but it, it sounds like the company's success too was beneficial to you and that you were able to grow. 100%. And so tell me what happens after 2016. Running the department, we're kind of implementing the strategy there was I felt coming in, it felt like there was like four separate companies a little bit where we had the Southeast did it this way and the Mid-Atlantic did it this way and the Northeast. We we're trying to create brand and consistency so that we could leverage the entire portfolio instead of just one deal maker. So I spent a lot of time doing that, growing the bench of leasing pool talent for the next few years and continuing to grow our managers, our directors, our VPs, as we call them, to help them get the most out of their deal makers. That was a big focus of mine. And then in 2018, at the end, I got promoted to chief operating officer, which was all the call it property related stuff, leasing, property management, marketing, and construction report up to me, which is at any given time, 60, 70 people. 
So different departments, mat people who manage people who manage people reporting through and up to me. Incredible growth, personal growth for you. It yeah, sounds totally. like your career. How has that adjustment been? I mean, obviously, you know, leasing cold. Yeah. You, you probably knew enough to be dangerous in construction, knew enough to be dangerous in some of the other components of the, of the job that you're ever seeing. But I think you'd be misleading yourself even if you were considered So there was a lot I didn't know, right? And my head of construction has been in the business for 30 years. He was at Preet. He was at General Contractors. He was at a private guy uh, called O'Neill Properties. So he knows more about construction than me. Our head of property management was at Red, Mace Ridge, right? He knows more about property management than me. I know enough to be dangerous, as you said, but where I really think add value is how do we, by example, in 2019, the second half of the year, my head of property management, me, the biggest focus was we're creating what is the 2020 strategy and what is the strategy going forward for the property to management department? How do we get property management to align with the company goals? And that's what we were focused on. And he's going out to implement that now, but we spent months and months in doing that. And we even have like a deck of that anyone in the company can look at. This is what property management's doing. This is the plan that they're doing. And that's what we're focused on. I've grown to be really good at that type of stuff. The thing that I learned the most was the place I was most deficient in, actually, because in leasing, you spend a lot of time in property management. You spend a lot of time in construction. The thing I was most deficient in was marketing because there's this like, I think, thing from like sales guys or leasing guys where marketing's this and the deal guys make the deal. And I realized I bought into the fact that marketing matters. And so that's where I spent a ton of time researching marketing. And that led to me researching social media and digital marketing because I felt I was so deficient in that. And I bought in that marketing could make one move that moves the entire company. And there's no one deal that could do that. Right. And so a company of your size, for sure. Yeah. And so that's where I spent a lot of time learning marketing because I realized I thought I knew a lot, but it was pretty humbling to learn how much I didn't know about marketing. Did you have like an ah like moment with like a specific conference or a quote that you heard or somebody, a message that was brought home to you where where you turned it on? Like for me, actually, I hung out with you most of the day at Agent 2021 a few years back. Yeah. And that's when my LinkedIn game, I was like, I got to commit... I think it's too much for me to do all these platforms at once, but I, I got serious about LinkedIn at that time, for example. Yeah. So I would say that the big aha moment for me was realizing that the phone, and I'm holding the phone for people out there, is the new TV and the channels have changed and it's no longer ABC, Fox, ESPN, NBC. It's LinkedIn, Snapchat. And I realized, and Facebook and Instagram that everyone's attention is going to this and the smart marketers are going to grab that attention. And that was said to me and I was like, does DLC have the attention of those people? And that's when the aha moment was for me. Yeah. A lot of us in the room have egos. And I think a lot of the people in this room think that they're doing social media and think they're doing marketing or, or think they're managing their people or whatever, whatever the topic may be related to their business. And it might be a little bit better in their head. And I give you a lot of credit for saying, you know what, we can be better at this. I think it reverts all the way back to your upbringing. What I would say is the industry has, in my opinion, relied on property level marketing and that the properties are market themselves versus the concept of what's behind the property and marketing that. No different than 
when you watch a Nike commercial and it's, they're not selling shoes. I've never watched a Nike commercial. They said, buy the Nike shocks for $99.99. Yeah, it's all about some guy running a marathon and he's got no legs and overcoming obstacles, just do it. And people connect with that brand and they end up buying shoes because of that. And so I think that this industry, commercial real estate lacks that creative and buying that creative is expensive, I've learned. And maybe that's why, but all these other industries have spent fortunes on marketing and believe in it. And I was like, if all these other companies are spending so much money on marketing, why do we feel that it's so less important than all these other parts of our business? Credit to you for not thinking, well, just because everybody else does it is the acceptable answer. Yeah, yeah. Kudos to you for that. And look, I think that in a weird way, like I know you preach the gospel of everybody should be doing more marketing. I certainly do myself. Most people don't do it. And in a weird way, you kind of don't want them to because guys like us get to take advantage of it, especially you. I mean, totally. With the, with the yeah. resources and, that you have and the commitment you've made to it, it's, it's truly impressive. Totally. It's white space right now. So, right. Yeah. I'm going to plan to keep on running, which was, you know, I had a lot of fear jumping in with this podcast and I thought a long time about it and I should have done it earlier than I did. I was just, there's no good excuse for why not. But I think that there's only a few people out there who are doing these podcasts. More people are picking up on LinkedIn, but even two or three years ago, there's only a handful of us in the industry who are actively posting on LinkedIn. And totally shameless plug for, for Retail Retold. I would tell you, if you haven't heard of Chris's podcast or DLC's podcast that Chris is the host of, Retail Retold, I'd highly recommend listening to it. Thank you. Specifically episode four, there's some schmuck on there named Aaron Zucker about, uh, <laughs> about a deal in Fuquay Varina, North Carolina. One of our top five episodes. There you go. <laughs> top five out of the first five, maybe. So you've certainly been an inspiration for little old Zig as well. And I think our peers will eventually pick up on it. But until then, I hope you continue to enjoy the the white space, as you say. Yeah. Anyway, enough of the of the side rant on the marketing stuff, although that could be a whole nother podcast within itself. Your COO role, going back to what you're doing on a day-to-day. I mean, you seem like this is something you always wanted. Was that the case as soon as you got into real estate? I mean, when I got in real estate, I couldn't spell COO, never mind know what a COO was. <laughs> and it's only three letters. Right. So I would say that I thought I had intangible skills to be a good leader, humble, hungry, socially smart. I put the team first, sacrifice yourself for the team, the socially smart, be able to connect with people and hungry, do more than what's required. And so those three intangibles, I think, can set you up to be a good leader. And so I thought I had those and I was willing to sacrifice myself for the team. I was willing to do go above and beyond. And I love networking, connecting, whether it's accountant in our office and learning about their story or someone at a conference like this. And so I thought I had those skills that I could lead. And what I was missing was the business acumen. And I learned that along the way. So yeah, technical skills you can pick up on. You can't can't replicate the personality traits. So it sounds like basically you knew what you liked. You knew what you wanted out of the fulfillment you were looking for in your career. And those things added up happened to be COO, which is... Yeah. So I, I can tell you there was a time, I don't know if there's another job that I would want in life, I actually love my job. And so to give you context, and I think it's related to this, one time I was like, do I want to be a college wrestling coach and build a team and whatnot? So I had that leadership coaching mentality. When I was younger, I was like, I'm going to be the coach of the Jets. So I always had that. And I just never realized how it might apply in the business world. Sure. So those of us who know you and people are getting to know you as a byproduct to listen to this podcast, I don't think anybody's shocked by what you've been up to and how you've gotten there. All your skills add up at a place. And I was just going to ask you about this. You're a young guy. 
Yeah. And you're at this incredible job. Adam's still relatively young too for a CEO of, a, yeah, of an organization so, like his. Like, what do you strive for next? Like, what? So I'm a partner there. And so the strive is different. Adam's the owner of DLC and the properties are primarily his money. And it's so that's not changing. But where I'm at is I feel ownership. I have ownership in some of the properties. I feel ownership. I'm a partner. I feel ownership in the company. So What's next for me is taking DLC to the next level. Right. That's what's next. It's essentially what you feel like is, is your business, which yeah, in, in exactly. part it is. I get that because sometimes I struggle too. Like I got the job I wanted from a career standpoint at 27 and then started my own gig at 30. And like, there is nowhere to go as far as a title. As yeah, I use quotations no... saying that for, for really either of us in our yeah. existing roles. So it's interesting to get your perspective. And it sounds like we're very aligned in the sense that you want to grow DLC the same way I want to grow Zig. All right, so I'm going to start throwing some rapid-fire questions go. at you because you got me pretty good on your episode. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Craziest deal you've ever worked on? I worked on one recently in Vernon, Connecticut, where we leased to ShopRite. I was a former Price Chopper box. We got HomeSense and ShopRite to split it. And it was crazy because it was the Price Chopper termination and ShopRite had to be signed at the same time by six o'clock on this Friday for fiscal year purposes. It was me, Adam, and our general counsel in the office waiting for scans to come through at like 5.50. And it would have been a problem if it was 6.01. Seriously. Seriously. And one of the big problems was the pharmacy had to be sold from Price Chopper to ShopRite and the pharmacy couldn't get closed. And part of it was that deal was happening too. And we were helping helping, I say, where we weren't brokering the deal of the pharmacy, but we were making sure that people had the right stuff working and whatnot to make that happen. And then all the things that happened with that price shopper closes and it's a dark box and the pharmacy can't move out of the space. And how do you keep the utilities on to keep the pharmacy running? Because ShopRite legally couldn't close it down. It was pretty wild. Yeah. So it's funny. I was was having lunch with Drew Inselman by Below today, and we were talking about how it's important for companies to let people have a little bit of better work-life balance and how nothing that we're doing is urgent in this business. And then you completely contradict everything <laughs> that we just talked I about. Say, I wouldn't say that it was urgent to that deal. We're not curing cancer, but the pharmacy staying open was important to the community, right? People yeah. needed to be able to access the pharmacy. So that did matter. Sure. That is nuts. Wow. Advice for someone either trying to break into the business or who's a couple of years in that wants to get to a role like yours? If you're growing in an organization, some of the old school things, right? Like you can totally have a work-life balance, but if you want to get to the top, you're going to have to go above and beyond. You're going to have to do more than what's required. And I can tell you, I struggle with work-life balance where I'm at today because my job is very taxing. There's a lot going on. And so don't be afraid to do what's more than required and understand that if you don't, it will be a challenge to grow. Network like crazy, read a ton. Perfect segue to my next question. It's like you're looking at my notes. What is the one book that changed your life? I know you're a reader. Definitely. I read about a physical book once every two months, an audio book bi-weekly, maybe more. One book that changed my personal life this is getting you back for throwing me on the on the spot. So the- I would say I'll give a recent one, and I've really grown to love this guy. Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. I just finished that book. 
I just finished that book. That is a very Chris Russell like book. <laughs> I love that, that guy's book. a badass. <laughs> yeah, he's the totally toughest guy to marry. Yeah, I would I would definitely echo that recommendation out there. You guys should all read that book. Great, great one. I'll give another personal one, which is Relentless by Tim Groger. He was Michael Jordan's personal trainer. Okay. And so he tells the story of what he calls cleaners and closers and what makes people like really next level. And he talks about one of the lines he uses is when people have the LeBron Jordan argument. It was one of my favorite lines. And he says, LeBron wants to play with the best. And that's why he's changing all these teams. And Jordan wanted to beat the best. <laughs> that's a good one. I like that. I like that one. I'm a LeBron fan. Of course. I mean, I definitely a Jordan fan after his career is over and he beat my old Charlotte Hornets teams in the playoffs every year. That that's pretty riveting. That really resonated with me. And yeah. it's very rare that I'm left at like a loss for words, but I had to process that, that line. So that's a good one. I appreciate, I appreciate that. From a business perspective, one of the recent books I read was the story of Netflix. So people should check that out if they want to see a business one. It's really okay. cool. So you guys got two bonus books out of Chris. That's awesome. Appreciate that. And then last question before I let you roll. So people don't like talking about it, but you are inevitably going to die just like I am and everybody else is. Yep. And I think everybody that I talk to has a similar legacy approach for how they want their family and stuff to remember them. But you know, in theory, I, I think you are very well on a path to where when you die many, 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 many decades down the line, that, you know, when ICSC is still around, they're going to be writing an article about the legend in our industry, Chris Ressa passes away. What do you want your legacy to be like in that article? He did the ordinary extraordinarily well. I like that. Great answer. Chris, super humbled that you were able to join me. Totally inspired by what you've been able to do and help build at DLC and, and with your personal brand on social media stuff. I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to join me. And best of luck going forward. And thanks for having me. Thank you for having me, man. Thanks for listening to Limitless. If you like what you heard, it would mean the absolute world to me if you took a little bit of your time to subscribe. If not, perhaps even leaving a review, good, bad, or indifferent. And please feel free to reach out to me directly on my LinkedIn page or on our website, zuckerinvestmentgroup.com. 